So it's May 5th, 2018 in Seattle. And we're going to be going on a search beyond ordinary life. This is uh, the basic background from which we wrote this book. This is a, a Krishna conscious novel. And it's based on Jed Bharat's description of the forest of enjoyment in the fifth canto. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's description of Sarvagya to Sanatana Goswami and Raghunath Das Goswami's Manashiksha, which we taught last time we were So. I have to do like that? If I just do like this, it doesn't work. I have to do this? Okay, so we do. Uh, boy, it has to be really, really hard. Okay. Nope. There we go. All right. So, Jeff uh, Ford is a very interesting personality in the Bhagavatam. First, he has a life as Bharat Maharaj. He's a great king. And in that life, he gives up his kingdom and he goes to the forest. He's in meditation. He attains to the stage of bhava. And then he becomes attached to a deer. He dies attached to the deer, takes birth as a deer. And in that deer body, he hangs around with sages. He just eats dry grass and hangs around with sages and waits until he dies. Now when he dies, he takes birth in a family of brahmanas. And in that family of brahmanas, he decides that he's going to be a recluse. He's going to be a hermit. So we know that many people decide, in many religions of the world, that they're going to be a recluse, that they're going to leave society, they're going to live in a cave or a monastery, they're not going to interact with anybody, right? But Bharat made this decision when he was only about two years old. So how is he going to go live in a monastery? So what he did was he went in a cave inside. He didn't talk to anybody. He didn't act like he could see or hear. He just basically didn't interact with the world except the bare minimum. And he didn't speak for his whole life. And then we don't know exactly why he decided to speak at this point. Uh, but after going through a lot of difficulty in life, I mean, he was... Uh, he was mistreated very much by his uh, half-brothers. But at a certain point in life, he decided that uh, he was just going to travel, leave home. And as he was walking around, there was this king, Rahugana, and Rahugana's in the palanquin there, whose one of his palanquin carriers got sick, and he needed a new palanquin carrier. And there was uh, Bharat, he was called Jeddah Bharat. Jeddah means dull or foolish or stupid, like the stupid part, basically. <laughs> hey, stupid. You know, that was what they called him. So they saw him at the side of the road and uh, the other palanquin carrier said, hey, he's young and strong, let's get him. So they put him in service, but because he was a saintly person, when he was walking, he wouldn't step on any of the creatures in the road. And so if you're walking, carrying a palanquin, a palanquin, without stepping on any of the creatures on the road, the palanquin is going to be shaking. 
So it was shaking and King Rehugana got out and he said, hey, what are you doing? Why aren't you carrying it properly? And he said, I can see that you're just weak and old. You know, he was being sarcastic. And, I, and we don't know why, but somehow uh, Bharat decided, Jada Bharat, decided at that point he was going to speak. After his whole life never saying a word, at this point he decided to speak. And he told a story about merchants in a forest. So that's where we're going to start our story. Now these merchants in a forest, this is symbolic of the idea that the soul has turned his back on Krishna and entered into the material world. So the material world is compared to a great forest where one goes for enjoyment. And in this forest, one hopes to... And by the way, the paintings here, we have... Um, the paintings were done by Faguni Radhika of Ypsilanti and uh, Padma Gopi uh, in North Carolina. So this was one of Faguni Radhika's paintings. She also did the, the cover for the book. So the spirit soul goes into this great forest of enjoyment thinking... I'm going to get some enjoyment separate from Krishna. And in this great forest of enjoyment, they're looking for many items to sell. So the way Jed Bart tells the story, is, it's not the best picture on those screens. But anyway, they're looking for many items. They're going in the forest thinking, oh, we'll collect some fruits from the forest, we'll collect some barks from the, bark from the trees, some resin from the trees, We'll collect some wood. We'll collect the seeds of plants. We'll collect all kinds of things in the forest. What other th- kind of things could you find in the forest to sell? Any ideas what else you could find in the forest to sell? Huh? Skins of animals. What else? Honey. Any other ideas what you could find in the forest? Ivory tusks. Ivory tusks of elephants. All right. There, are, there is an elephant in this story. That's later. Herbs. Herbs. Okay, you can find a lot of herbs for medicines, spices. Lumber. Lumber. So we are the merchants. We, the living being who've left Krishna, we are the merchants in this great forest. And we're going through the forest trying to find things that we can profit from. So the things in the forest are compared to the sense objects we find in this world. You know, we're trying to get a, a house, a car, a, a new phone, a new toy, whatever it may be. We're trying to get things in this world. We're taking the elements of this world and trying to enjoy them. So this is just like we're going to this forest. Now what happens in the forest is you tend to get lost. You go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the forest, finding something valuable that you want to sell. And in doing that, you get lost. And you can't find what anymore? What can't you find anymore? Well, perhaps, but you can't find your what? You can't find your way out. You can't find your home. And that's where, we, that's where we start off in our novel. We start off with our, in our novel of merchants in the forest who can't find their way home. They don't even know 
where they're home, the younger ones don't even know where their home is anymore. And that's our position in this world. Because when we're going through this forest, it's not just one lifetime, it's many, many, many lifetimes. So we're going through many, many species of life, many, many lifetimes, many lifetimes as a human, lifetimes as a tree, lifetimes as an animal, lifetimes as a bug, and we get lost. We don't remember, who am I? Where did I come from? Where is my home? How do I get out of here? I remember reading a very interesting true story quite some years ago about uh, a woman who was visiting some friends. And she was uh, a trained explorer and hiker. And she told her friends, I want to go out for a walk. And said she was trained. But somehow, she did something opposed to her training. So while she was walking in the woods near her friend's house, she decided that she wanted to climb up on a hill to get a better view. But the climb was very steep. And so she decided she was going to take off her pack that had her food, her water, her phone, and leave it at the bottom of the hill. And as she was climbing up this steep hill, she got to the top and realized, I can't get down. I can't get down the way I came. I can't get down the other side. I'm stuck, and I'm stuck here without food, without water, without any means of communication. And I didn't even tell my friends exactly where I was going. So she like violated all the rules of going out into the woods. And she's, obviously she was telling the story, which is how we know it, so she got out of it. She was rescued eventually by a helicopter after like three days. But she said after a couple days on the top of this hill, she started praying, Dear Lord, why did you put me in this position? And then she could immediately understand, I put myself in this position. So having lost our way in this world, we think, you know, well, why did God put me, why is God making me suffer? Why is God giving me so many problems? But I'm the one who's come to this world and has lost my way. Now, having lost my way, I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to get out. I don't know how to get home. So, what do we do? Now, Doug Barnes says that our benefit, our, we have a, people who have our benefit in mind who are also in this world. And he compares these to honeybees. And these are the saintly persons. So the saintly persons are also in this world and they can tell us the way out. So why do you think Jed Bart compares the saintly persons to a honeybee? Yes? Like the honeybee collects the uh, honey from the ingredients for the honey from different from flowers. Mm. Oh, that's that's a what's wonderful. Yes. Just ah, so the great sages collect. What you're saying, the great sages collect the most important thing, and then they give it in their own form. Yes. So, like the honeybee, they're collecting from all the flowers, and then they give it in a very wonderful form that we can use. Any other idea of why Jedbar is comparing the saintly persons to a honeybee? 
Yes, whatever dirt is there, the honeybee goes right to the flower. So this, of course, is a very important point because our tendency in this world is to be fault finders, isn't it? To be critics. It's like we're all uh, unpaid critics. Some people have that as their job, right? They're a book critic or a movie critic or something, but we're, we're unpaid critics. This person's doing that wrong, and this is wrong, and that's wrong, and this wrong, and that wrong, and look at that problem, and look at that problem. And many of us do it with ourselves. We just look at our own lives and say, I'm doing this wrong, and that wrong, and I have this problem, and that problem. So the honeybee goes right for the good things. Honeybees are not attracted to garbage. There are many insects attracted to garbage and filth and excrement, but the honeybee is interested. And also the honeybee extracts the essence. The honeybee extracts the essence, the nectar of the flowers, and turns that into uh, honey. Uh, so therefore we, we called our book The Essence Seekers because we're, we're going with, with someone, we're following saintly persons who are looking for the essence So in this great forest, one may find this saintly person in the form of a honeybee. And this saintly person in the form of a honeybee will give us direction as to how ourselves to find the essence of life. Now, Jad Bharata is going to give us what these honeybee saintly persons will tell us about this world. Now I should prepare you that this is a little strong stuff. Okay, are you ready? Yeah. You ready for something a little strong? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You sure? Yeah. All right. You girls ready over there? Sure? It's a little it's a little heavy, I don't know. What about you guys? Can you guys take something a little heavy? Alright. Ready? Alright. So, they have a saying that if you don't think one person can make a difference... Oh, now we went too... Ah! If you don't think one person can make a difference, try sleeping with a mosquito. Have you ever tried to sleep with a mosquito? Who here has tried to fall asleep when there's a mosquito in the room? And what are you doing? You're you're hitting yourself, right? You're going... Uh, So these mosquitoes, mosquitoes and flies, they're compared to nasty, envious people who criticize us. Who here has ever had anyone else go around criticizing you? Who's had somebody go around criticizing you? Boy, well, some of you people are really lucky. Nobody's ever criticized? So people who are criticizing us, who are envious of us, they're like these mosquitoes. We end up in anxiety. Right? Oh, what are they saying about me? Is this bad thing going to happen? Is that bad thing going to happen? Are they gonna, am I going to lose this? Am I going to lose my job? I guess. 
Am I going to lose my friends? Right? What's going to happen to me from all these, these critics? And then are, are, are we're not peaceful, just like it's so difficult to sleep when there's mosquitoes buzzing around. We can't be peaceful. Maybe I should just signal you, Russell. All right, then there's locusts. This is a swarm of locusts. And rats and birds of prey. So what do those creatures do? What do the locusts do? No, locusts are insects. They're uh, kind of like grasshoppers. And locusts, uh, locusts come sometimes in big swarms. Frankly, they don't come every year, but usually every few years there'll be swarms of locusts. And what do they do? They destroy the crops. And then what do the rats do? They also destroy the crops. Of course, birds of prey don't destroy the crops. Uh, They may attack you, but then there are other birds like crows that will destroy crops. So these are the metaphors for people who take away our hard-earned wealth. Anything that we work really hard for. I'm sure sometimes in school you work really, really hard for... I I had one time a teacher who gave us an assignment to do that was due at the end of the month. And so I thought, oh, I'll get my work done early. And so I did my assignment after only one week. And then my teacher said, oh, I decided you don't need to do the assignment. (laughs) So she took away my hard-earned work, you understand? It was useless. Sometimes we work hard, we do something, and somebody else just discounts it. Yes? I mean, these may be actual thieves who take away what you have, but they can be, you know, you, you work hard at a job, your boss says, okay, I'd like to do this and this and this, and you work on it, I once did that, I was asked to do something and I worked at it for four months. I did a whole lot of research and then I was, I was asked to put together a course. I spent 100 hours just working on the course and then after I did it all, the people who asked me to do it said, oh, we decided we're not going to use that. Anything like that ever happened to any of you that you worked really hard for something and somebody took it away? Anything that happened to anybody? Something you worked for, somebody took away? Ladies all have an easy life, I don't know. So these are compared to like the locusts, the rats, the crows, the farmers working really, really hard, and just when they're ready to harvest, it gets taken away. Just when they're ready to take their hard work and enjoy it, it's gone. Okay? So just you're just ready, okay, I've worked hard, it's all there. Now I'm going to get it. One friend of mine worked for seven years for her PhD. She was just about done, and the head of her committee got a stroke. So they, the university assigned a new head of her committee, and the new head of her committee didn't like her work. And because the uh, deadline had passed, she didn't have more time to complete her degree. She wasn't able to get her degree after seven years of work. So that's like that, the, the locusts and the rats. Should I just signal you? Should I? 
Uh, can I, I've been trying. <laughs> there we go, I guess. Now we just have a blank. Oh, there we go. Nope. Next one. Yeah, all right. Then there's... No, you have, you have a square that you set aside for me. There you have hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. So when I was a school teacher, one of the things that I noticed was that if children were uncharacteristically ill-behaved, they were probably hungry or tired. If you had a child that was normally well-behaved and all of a sudden they weren't well-behaved, they were probably hungry or tired. And the thing is... Hare <laughs> Krishna. The thing is that when we grow up, even as adults, we can be very unpleasant when we're hungry or tired or thirsty, right? Does anyone know the famous story in the Bhagavatam of somebody who lost his intelligence because he was hungry, tired, and thirsty? Marge Prickett, yes. Are you broadcasting this? If you're broadcasting, you can put me back on. Sorry. I didn't know you were broadcasting. So yeah, Marge Prickett was out hunting and I guess he didn't have a bottle of water with him. So he was out hunting and he got very thirsty. And he was also very tired and he was very hungry. So what so boys, do you get grouchy when you're hungry? Yes. Some of them are grouchy because they're bored. Are you bored? No. Do I I don't have enough like singing and dancing here to entertain you? So are you bored? So many times when we're hungry or we're tired we get not very pleasant, isn't it? We get a little unpleasant. You don't have to raise your hands for this, but you can just think, have I ever been nasty to my family because I was really hungry or tired? Or I was upset about something else? And, and sometimes, you know, we're hungry, we're tired, we're thirsty, we're sick, and because we have some problem ourselves, we don't treat other people nicely. Rasika, are they going to put me back on or is it gone? Yeah. Okay. So this is also a problem that we don't treat others nicely and they don't treat us nicely. Even though they may be our family members, they may be our friends, isn't it? We have close family members, everybody loves everybody else and somebody's tired and they start a fight. They're hungry and they start a fight. They had a bad day at work and then they come back home and, you know, they say the man yells at his wife, the wife yells at the kids and the kids kick the dog. You know, we, we, have, we have our frustrations, our difficulties and then we make other people suffer for them. Then sometimes we think, now I'm going to solve all of my problems. I have this great goal in life. So there's a number of groups that say all you have to do is you have to decide on your goal, picture it, you know, draw a picture of it, put it on your wall, meditate on it every day, and you will attain it. So this is compared by Jed Barrett to a castle in the sky. Something where you think this is going to be something wonderful that I will achieve, but you never actually get there. It's a kind of mirage. Just like, you know, on a hot day when you're driving and it looks like there's water in the road, but when you come up there, there's actually no water. 
So similarly, a castle in the sky is something you think you're going to achieve, and 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 you work for it, and you work for it, and you work for it, and you don't really get it. You know, maybe it's a certain amount of money, maybe it's a certain kind of job, maybe you, you, know, you think I'm going to make some scientific discovery that's going to change the world, or something like that. You know, I'm going to make a video on YouTube that has 10 million viewers, or whatever, you know, we have some goal like this that I'm finally going to conquer all of these problems in life, I'm going to win, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to finally be the ruler of the world, and we have these ideas, but they never happen. So this is like the castle in the sky. Alright, then this next one is called the will-o'-the-wisp, uh, or also phosphorescence in a swamp. So there's a peculiar phenomena which nobody really can explain. That sometimes in a swamp there'll be an appearance of gold. So it's like something that glitters and it looks like gold. And sometimes people think that, oh, there's gold there. Now, this is also called the will of the wisp. And the will of the wisp can also mean like some sort of not very nice... Uh, entity like a fairy like an evil fairy or something that you know like you go to get the gold and you fall into the swamp and you die so this is compared to thinking that happiness is to be found in money and thinking if I could just get enough money I would be happy so this is just like thinking you know that the glitter in the swamp is gold so my dear friends although certainly having a reasonable amount of money is a very nice thing. There's no doubt about that. It's nice to have enough money so that you can eat and you have clothing and you have a home. But all of the research shows that any money outside of the bare necessities of life does not make you happier. I mean, study after study after study after study that once we have our basic necessities of life, getting more money does not make us happier. There's also a lot of studies that no matter how much money we have, we always want about 10% more. We're always thinking, if I could just have a little bit more, then I would be secure. Of course, the irony of this, particularly in America today, is that even Americans that are considered not so well off in America, even if you're like lower middle class in America, you're still among the top 1% of wealthy people in the world. You know, so in America you may think, oh, you know, I don't have enough money, I don't have a good position, but compared to the average person in the world, you're actually quite well off. Even compared to other Western countries, even compared to Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, even the other Western countries, the average American is much better off. But still we're thinking, you know, I always, I need more and 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 I need more. And we have some kind, you know, if I get to this point of money, then I will be happy. So this is compared to this phosphorescence. It's, it's glowing and it looks like something valuable and you get there and it's just some combination of chemicals and light and all you do is fall into a swamp. I mean, if we just think for a minute... If money were the whole essence of happiness, then we would say that rich people in general would be happy. 
At least 90% of rich people would be happy. Are 90% of rich people happy? No. And are 90% of poor people unhappy? No. I know plenty of very happy poor people and plenty of very unhappy rich people. There's, there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between wealth and happiness. But this is this idea, this will of the wisp. All right. Ah, take me back. You're like way, 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 way. You're ruining my whole story for everybody. All right, guys. All right, so then Judd Barrett tells, gives the metaphor of a shallow river that's filled with rocks. So I'm sure we all know someone or have heard of somebody who got in some sort of a diving accident, right? Somebody who thinks, here's a river I can dive into, and they dive into the river, and it's very shallow, filled with rocks, and they break their neck. And then they're paralyzed. So... Dead Bard compares a shallow river full of rocks with religions that say the purpose of religion is to become prosperous and successful in the world. Now we find that a large majority of religious practitioners in the world think like this. They think if you pray to Jesus, if you pray to Durga, if you, whatever, you know, whatever their idea of religion is, if you take up this religion... God will shower you with material prosperity. Now, certainly better to take up religion for prosperity than not to take up religion. But it, it's basically saying, I want to serve God so that I can stay in this forest of enjoyment and be lost, but be a little bit more comfortable here. So it looks like it's a river. It looks like it'll be refreshing. It looks like it will actually give you some relief, but all you do is break your neck. It's another one of Faguni Radhika's paintings. So here is a whirlwind or a dust storm. So some of you probably heard that just uh, recently in, in Uttar Pradesh there were severe dust storms, yes? In India? Yeah. In Rajasthan and Uttar Pradesh, and I think 16 people died, something? 70. 70. 70. Now more than 100. So a bad dust storm. So in a dust storm, you can't see clearly. Okay? I mean, they're dying in these dust storms that's blowing down trees and roofs. But in a dust storm, you can't see clearly. So, of course, we don't have those in this part of America. Uh, but sometimes you have a heavy rainstorm. Sometimes you can't see, like you're driving, you can't see from the rain. Or sometimes there's a blizzard. I don't think you have many blizzards here. But sometimes there's like a blizzard of snow, you can't see. So some kind of weather phenomena where you're not able to see clearly. So Judd Bard compares this to sexual attraction. In fact, particularly improper sexual attraction. So when we get attracted to somebody, we have some romantic attraction to an improper person. We lose our intelligence. And all over the world, they, they call this like falling in love, right? You fall. In Russia, the expression is you lose your head. You know, you lose your sense. I remember when I was growing up, there was a very famous song 
called When a Man Loves a Woman. It was saying, you know, he can't see, if, if she's not a good woman, he can't understand it. Because he's lost his head. He's lost his intelligence. Uh, so therefore, in civilized societies, uh, used to be anyway, that you don't just let uh, unmarried people go out and find somebody. You don't just say, go in the world and just find somebody. Why? Because you lose your intelligence. You're not able to discriminate who's a good person, who's a bad person, who's a, what, what I should do. Isn't that a fact? Yes. And again, I'm sure we all know of people who have had this happen to them. You know, I know many people who have had this happen to them. Where they become attached to somebody and you're like, this is not a suitable person. <laughs> I, had, I had one woman I know who always said, I'm never going to marry, I'm never going to marry, I'm never going to marry. And then she met this, this man and she just became blinded by this dust storm. And he was an ex-convict. I was like... I said, look, he's not, this is not a suitable person for you. Oh, but I love him. You know, and you have some idea of how that story ended. So this is, it's a very unfortunate thing and something that, uh, that we should be willing to be, to allow ourselves to be protected from. It's, it's actually a, a great downside of the modern world that people are not protected in this way. And that it's, it's almost like the whole world is walking around in a big dust storm. All right, then we have owls and crickets. You know what crickets are? These little bugs, they, they, they like to come in the house and they make this chirping noise at night. But you can't find them. So, you know, they're making this noise. But they're, they're hiding. And then owls are very interesting. Owls are, are silent. And because of their silence, they can swoop on their prey without the prey noticing. You know, they fly at night, so they're unseen and they're silent. So these are the enemies that we don't see. Do you know, many people are saying that you are this and this and this. Oh, who's saying? Well, I can't tell you who's saying it. But many people are saying what exactly are they saying? I can't tell you that either. It's confidential. But listen, I, as, as your friend, I just want to tell you that many people are saying you have a problem and you should take care of it. Ah! <laughs> right? The unseen enemies, the people talking behind our backs. We're not quite sure what they're saying. We're not quite sure who's saying it. But we know somebody's saying something. You know, you, what people are talking, you walk in the room and all of a sudden they're... And this is, again, so much anxiety because we don't know, you know, what's, what's going on, who's saying what, do I have to worry about it, what do I have to worry about? I remember one time when someone came and said something to me like that. Hermila, many people are saying... It turned out the only people saying something was the person who was talking to me. <laughs> Alright, then there's the poisonous snakes. So these are the enemies. They don't just make noise and they're not unseen, but they actually harm us. These are the enemies who act actively harm us. The people, you know, who go to our boss and lodge a, a, a 
untrue complaint about us, who take things from us, people who actually hurt us in our lives, the people who bully us, someone who deals with us unfairly in a harmful way. And we know, of course, that snakes will attack even if not provoked. Right? That's one of the, the nasty things about a snake. That even if it doesn't need food to eat, and even if it's not provoked, it will just attack to attack. So there are a number of, of entities like that. All right, and now we have the steep mountains that are covered with thorns. So these are all the ceremonies. Weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, this ceremony, that ceremony. Somebody was telling me how much the, the new the royal wedding in England is about to cost. Does anyone remember what that is? Something like forty million pounds or something. So that's like this mountain of thorns that you have to spend $20,000 on a wedding, right? Oh no, my kid's getting married. I have to get a second mortgage on the house and sell the car. And then I've got to deal with all the relatives. Oh, we have this uncle, nobody likes him, but we have to invite him to the wedding anyway. And he's going to start an argument with the other uncle. So we're going to have to keep them on different sides of the room. And then, you know, what are we going to have? What, what color? No, oh, I don't like that color. Well, you have to wear that color because I'm your mother and I'm telling you what to do. Well, I don't want you to do... You know, so it's, it's, this, it's like going up this steep mountain that's covered with thorns. And again, you know, I'm sure we all know of times when there's these big ceremonies that are really more trouble and more pain than whatever joy we get out of them, isn't it? You know, and you're like, oh, I'm glad that that's over. All right, then there's the government that taxes us. Right? There's the sales tax and the this tax and the that tax. And I was getting my Washington driver's license, and they're like, oh, $117, please. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Jed Barr compares these taxing government officials to cannibalistic demons, which you cannot see at all in this picture on the wall. But if you can bear it, you can't. No, you just can't see it. But there's a cannibalistic demon there, and there's the government officers taking the wealth. But anyway, we probably shouldn't even bother showing this because you can't even see anything on the screen. <laughs> so, you know, we've, again, we've, we've earned our wealth with great difficulty, and we try to keep it nice, we try to keep it carefully. And if we're not bothered by thieves and we're not bothered by enemies, then we're bothered by the government. And the government is supposed to be using the tax money for our benefit. That's the idea. The idea is that the government takes taxes so it can do things for us that it's hard for us to do for ourselves, like building roads and having a police force and firefighters and so forth. But what does the government often do with the money? Elections. They're just for their own elections, right? They're just lining their own pockets. So you're paying taxes and the roads are still bad and you're paying taxes and the schools are still bad. Why? Because they're, they're keeping it for themselves to live a life of luxury. Or let me spend millions of dollars of the taxpayers' money taking a luxury cruise or something like that. So why cannibalistic demons? Because they're eating their own citizens, basically. Instead of caring for the citizens, they're devouring the citizens. All right, the next thing is... 
a swarm of bees in a disturbed hive. And this is compared to adulterous affairs. So in adulterous affairs, the betrayed party becomes as angry as bees in a hive. If you go to a hive of bees and you try to steal the honey, so the, bee, the bees will swarm and attack you. So if you try to take someone's wife, you try to take someone's husband, then that person will be very angry and will attack you. And again, this is something becoming more and more common in our modern society. Obviously, it was happening even at the time of Judd Bard. It's not like, it's not like people, nobody ever did this millions of years ago. Uh, but it become more and more common uh, for people to betray each other and, and uh, take someone else's legitimate spouse. All right, our next metaphor by Judd Bard is that of a python. And what a python does is a python, it uh, first stops the heart of the person, or the animal that is going to kill, and it wraps around them and, and smothers them to death and then eats them. So Judd Bard is comparing this python to sleep. So of course we all need to sleep, but if we sleep too much, it's just like our, our spiritual heart has stopped. And this is, you know, with gross physical sleep, but also applies to being spiritually asleep, to not being spiritually awake. We have a physical heart, but our real heart for God, our real heart for spiritual life is not functioning. So this is like this huge snake, and we're, we're like paralyzed and immobile and not able to function. And then there's the great lion. So after all this trouble, after all this trouble, finally the lion comes. And the lion is what? A metaphor for what, do you think? Death. The lion is a metaphor for death. So all these, all these trouble in life, and at the end, it's all for nothing. It's all gone. So this is a very depressing story that Judd Barrett told to Maharaj Rahugana. Okay, who can remember some of the, our metaphors here before we go on to the next section? Honeybees. Honeybees are like what? The sages and the saintly persons, good. Um, the one about the taking the honey from the bees and like taking a spouse. Yes, having an affair with somebody. Yes, good. Wasn't there like a thorn mountain or something? A mountain of thorns, yes. What's that an analogy for? The wedding. Weddings and ceremonies. Ceremonies in general. <laughs> big big ceremonies and, and things, yes. Excellent. The forest, and what happens in the forest? You get what? You get like, um, you want to like sell things basically. Right, and you get what? What happens to you? And then you go deeper and deeper into the forest, then you get lost. You get lost, yes, good. Okay. Yes? Uh, the uh, diving into the shallow river. The shallow river that's full of rocks. rocks. And that's an analogy for? False religions, religions that promise material happiness. Right, it looks like a religion, but you break your neck. Yes, the owls. Yes, the owls represent the enemies that, that we cannot see, the behind our back enemies. Mosquitoes. 
People talking about you, yes. Nasty things about you, good. Snakes and the python. Okay, there's the two. There's the python snake. Python snake is an analogy for? Sleep. Sleep. And then the poisonous snakes are for? Those who actually harm. Enemies who actually harm. Yes. A lion, which is? Death. Very good. All right, so are are we all now sufficiently depressed? (laughs) But you remember there was one good metaphor here. What was the one good one? The honeybee. Oh, we forgot one. What about the the, uh, dust storm? Yes. Uh, the swamps and the gold. The swamps and the gold. Yes, what's that? That's the castle in the sky. Castle in the sky is you see it, but you can't get it. And the the phosphorescence in the swamp is? Having a hope that getting money is going to make you happy. And what about the dust storm? Sexual attraction, especially with somebody that's improper. All right, so we now have a problem. Now, one thing we should know, by the way, if ever you you try to teach about anything to anybody, is people aren't going to want to learn something until they have a sense that they want to learn it. They have to feel a need to learn it. They have to feel some hunger for it. It's just like if you're not hungry, you're not going to eat, right? Usually, unless you have some sort of a problem. But generally speaking, if we're not hungry, we won't eat. Maybe we'll take a little taste or something. But we're not really going to eat something unless we're hungry. So people also have to be hungry for knowledge. And unless we understand that material life, materialistic life, is full of problems, we don't tend to be hungry for spirituality. If we think, you know, everything's fine, I'm going to be a success here, everything's wonderful, we don't tend to look for something more. So this story of Jud, that Jed Bharat told to King Rahugana made King Rahugana hungry for something more. Now you remember there was one good thing in all these metaphors. What was that? There was one good metaphor. The honeybee. The honeybee. There was one good metaphor. And we find in, in the book that we wrote, the honeybee will go all the way through the book. The same person will go all the way through the book helping the characters to actually find what is the essence of life. So now we're going to turn to something that uh, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told to Sanatana Goswami. So Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu told Sanatana Goswami his own set of metaphors. This is in Majalila, chapters 19 and 20. So, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu talks about the fact that, all right, now one is looking for the essence of life. Now he's thinking, all right, I'm tired of the mosquitoes, I'm tired of the owls, I'm tired, oh, we had another one we did that nobody remembered, the locusts, right? The locusts and the rats, what are they a metaphor for? They take your wealth, something you worked hard for, right? So the, the owls, the locusts, the dust storm, the thorny mountains, all, I'm tired of all this. I'm done with all this. I want to find the essence of life. So then one may say, all right, let me look for religion. Let me go to religion. 
then I'm going to find some enlightenment. All right, well, there's a problem because a lot of the religions of the world actually get people haunted by two witches. Does anyone know what these witches are? Yes? Liberation and material things. Right. The desire for liberation or the desire for material things. So we talked about earlier the totally false religions that just say, follow this religion and you'll get money. But here we're talking about real religions. It's not that the religions aren't real. They're genuine religions. But one is going to them looking for material prosperity or looking for liberation. And if we think about it carefully, all the main bona fide religions of the world mostly teach one of these two things, isn't it? If you take up our religion and you're a good person and you follow all the laws of God, then you will be able to enjoy in the world. You'll be happy in the world. And then you will also go to heaven after death and you'll be happy there. Or you'll merge into the oneness after death and then you'll just be peaceful. Isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't matter what religion. Pick any religion. Pick any religion. Go to their church, their mosque, their temple, their synagogue, whatever. And you'll find that mostly they're teaching this. Religion is a way to enjoy the world or religion is a way to find freedom from suffering and merge into the existence of God to find oneness. Oh, thank you so much. So any idea why Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu would say that if you go to religion in this way, it's like you're haunted by a witch? Any thoughts? Yes? Because uh, you can get possessed and just uh, what was, what really you were looking at, you won't go for it. Oh, okay. You, you become confused and you don't get what you're really looking for. Any other thoughts? Yes? Yes, a witch is a symbol of illusion. Some other thoughts about why Mahaprabhu says that these... Yes? Is it because you're still doing it for yourself? Oh, excellent. You're still doing it for yourself. Yes. You're still doing it for yourself. So we have actually um, a nice... I'm not telling you the story here, by the way, because that would ruin the story. So I'm just telling you the metaphors behind the story. But we have a nice quote here. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, yes, this is from Shri Prabhupada. The desire for salvation is a demonness because its reference point is oneself. So even though people who look for the essence of life become liberated from confusion and difficulty, liberation is not at all their goal. So it's a fact that if you take up, this is what's really tricky, everybody, if you take up a genuine religion, you probably will become happy in this world. Doesn't Krishna say that in the third chapter of Bhagavad Gita? If you do sacrifices, you'll be able to live happily and attain liberation. He says that, right? 
So if you take up a genuine religion, you will become happy in this world, generally. And you will, generally speaking, attain liberation. But if that's your goal for taking up a religion, then you're in some kind of an illusion. Isn't it? Just like I was talking to someone, I was talking to a, a, a young woman the other day, and she was saying, you know, I, I have to think about this for my career. And I said, well, if you get married, you know, your husband may support you. You may not have to be the only one who maintains yourself. She said, yeah, but I don't want to marry somebody just because they'll maintain me. Do you understand the difference? No? Blank looks... There's a big difference between I'm going to marry this guy so he'll maintain me and the fact that by getting married I may also be maintained. Do you understand the difference? Yes? If you're thinking the reason I'm going to the temple is I'll get some free food. Or if you come to the temple to do service and you also get some free food. But if one is thinking I'm going to take up a religious system because that way God will give me a nice position in this world and that way I'll achieve liberation after death, then you're just bewildered. And it's actually not a way out of the forest. Yes? Why in your book does it symbolize, I mean, I know witches are kind of connected to night, but in your book, um, you know, they, they seem normal during the day. No spoilers now. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's true that witches only come out at night. I'm not really like a witchologist. I really have no idea if witches can operate in the daytime or not. So, so why is it that that's... Well, they're connected to night because night's uh, run by the mode of ignorance. But anytime you look, anytime you go to a genuine religious path for Bukti or Mukti, you're haunted by a witch, even if you're going in the middle of the day. It's, it's not that you're only haunted by Bukti and Mukti if you go to your religion at night. <laughs> so if you go to your church at eleven o'clock in the morning and you're like, "God, please give me prosperity," you know, "Please cure my aunt Sally of cancer," and that's what I'm here for, then you're still haunted by a witch. Is that right? Now, now we're going to... Yes? Just on the witch thing, uh, is it also true that the witch uh, analogy is used because which kind of... Um, the witch signifies um, karma and jnana which take you away from Krishna. So it's like... Oh, that's Maya very good. That's very good. Yes. Actually, this is, it's karma kanda and jnana kanda. It's not, this is not karma yoga and jnana yoga. But it's, yes, you're going to religion for karma kanda or jnana kanda. So the result of karma kanda is I'm very happy in this life and I go to a heaven after death. And the result of jnana karma is I merge into the Brahman. So you're taking religion for that purpose. Do any of us like to be used? Anybody here like to be used? If somebody, you know, pretends to be our friend and actually they just want to get something from us. So that's not really friendship. Now, of course, they may be trying to please us. So I might be trying to please you and make you happy, but I want to make you happy because I want you to give me something. So that's, that's not love. And therefore, 
even though the religious system in and of itself may be genuine, if you approach it in that way, your experience will not be genuine. Does that make sense to everybody? Yes? So, we are still enjoined. From here on, we're looking at the analogies of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, but also we're kind of bringing in Raghunath Das Goswami's Manashiksha. We're enjoined by Raghunath Das Goswami to have love for the teachers of religions in general. And the way that we as individuals can help getting free of these riches of bhukti and mukti is by having genuine love for the teachers of religion, even if they're functioning at a lower level. We can have love for the fact that they're teaching genuine religion. And what's beautiful about anything that's genuine religion is that eventually one will become purified. Just like we say to people, even if you chant Hare Krishna with offenses, by chanting offensively, 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 eventually you'll become purified. Not that you should chant offensively, but eventually you'll become purified. It will take longer. So if somebody approaches Krishna, just like it's explained in the Bhagavatam, if you're even saying, oh, let's go to the Cinerama and watch a movie, Krishna gets all excited. They said my name. So yesterday when I was with the family, so, my, so Karika was um, listening to music and she had like headphones on. And so if people were talking, she couldn't hear them. But I said her name. I said, oh, you need to give that to Karika. And immediately she looked up. So we're all like that. Just like when you're in a crowd of hundreds of people talking, you know how the talking becomes kind of a blur. Right? You can't make out what they're saying, but if someone says your name, you can hear it. So Krishna's like that. When you say Sinarama, oh, you know, he perks up. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, his name is Harry. And he goes, oh, somebody's saying my name. So even a little bit of something is explained very nicely. Uh, Yamaraj in the sixth canto, even a little bit of endeavor in real religion will eventually bring you to bhakti. All right, so once we've gotten past these riches of bhakti and mukti, what are we going to do? Now Mahaprabhu is going to tell us about how do we deal with genuine religion in a genuine way. So he talks to Sanatana Goswami about a treasure. He says a man went to an astrologer called Sarvagya. Sarvagya means what? All-knowing. Went to an astrologer called Sarvagya, and the astrologer said, you have a relative who died in a foreign country and was very rich, and that relative left you a great treasure. But because he died in a distant place, you don't know about this treasure. So what do you think that treasure is? No, it's not money. Spiritual life, love of God. Yes. Krishna. Krishna. Not just Krishna, but Krishna Prima. Yes. Love for Krishna. So he said, now you could go in four different places to look for this treasure of love of God. He said, you might go in the north. You might go in the east, you might go in the west, and you might go in the south. So here we have 
a great city where one can find out true religion and it has a northern, eastern, western, and southern quadrant. In the north, Sarvagya said, you have to be very, very careful of a snake. In the south, you have to be very careful of the hornets. In the west, you have to be very careful of the yakshas. Now, Sarvagya didn't say what you had to be careful of in the east. He just said your treasure is in the east. But in the previous chapter, Mahaprabhu had said that when you go in the east, you have to be careful of wild elephants. So in each section of our great city of genuine religion, there is a danger. Can anybody remember what's the danger? What's the danger in the north? The snake. In the south, anybody remember? Hornets. In the west? Yakshas. And in the east? A mad elephant. All right, so first we're going to go north. So in the northern quadrant is what we call the mastery connection. Why do we call it the mastery connection? Connection is a way of saying what? What Sanskrit word means connection? Sambandha, yeah, also? Yoga. Yoga, connection is yoga. And why mastery? What kind of yoga do you think involves mastery? ever fasted for a whole day? Who's ever fasted for? Who's ever fasted from both food and water for a whole day? Anybody fasted from food, water, and sleep for 24 hours? So when you fast for a while, you get a kind of sense of mastery, don't you? Don't you? Right? The hunger starts welling up in your body, and you're like, I am not eating. So there. And the body goes, feed me! And you're like, ha, I'm not eating. As you fast some water, the body goes, please, water me. Give me the water. Water me. You go, I am not drinking. Isn't it? And you get a sense, I have mastered my senses and my mind. I am not listening to my mind and my body. I am telling it what to do and I am telling it not even to eat or drink. I am the master. So this is a Sangha Yoga, or Dhyan Yoga. In a Sangha Yoga, or Dhyan Yoga, one gets a mechanical mastery over the body and mind. One learns the mechanics, how to sit, how to breathe, how to meditate, how to think, so that the mind becomes still. Do you know what happens when the mind becomes still? It goes into what mode of nature? Sattva. By the way, the mind is naturally in what mode? Sattva. The mind is produced of Aniruddha, the mind is naturally in sattva It's like its default value to be in sattva So basically, as soon as the mind becomes still, it goes into sattva What happens when the mind's in sattva 
What are we able to do? Yes? See things as they are. As Krishna says that when the, when the mind is in the mode of goodness, you can tell what to do, what not to do, what is binding, what is liberating, what is to be feared, what is not to be feared. Isn't this one of our big problems in this world? I don't know what to do. What should I do? So wherever I go in the world, people ask me for advice and they usually ask me, what should I do? Generally, they think they only have two choices by now. Let's say, I have this choice and this choice. I don't like either one of them. What should I do? That was Arjuna's problem. He said, I can fight for a kingdom or I can leave and become a beggar. What should I do? And Krishna said, neither. Something else. So he was, I have this choice and this choice. I don't like either of them. What should I do? So as soon as the mind is in sattva, immediately we know what to do, what not to do, what's fearful, what's not, what's liberating, what's not. Everything becomes clear. And Krishna says, happiness in the mode of goodness awakens one to self-realization. Happiness in the mode of goodness, he says, it's like poison at the beginning, nectar at the end, and it awakens us to self-realization. So if you make the mind still in the mode of goodness, that may lead to seeing the self and the super-self. In fact, I know someone who came to Krishna consciousness, he was a Buddhist teacher of Vipassana meditation. And of course, the Buddhists teach there's no self and there's no God. And after like 20 years of doing this meditation, he actually had a vision of the super soul and the heart. And he said, oh, I didn't expect to find Krishna. <laughs> Not an Indian man. He said, I guess those Hare Krishnas were right. They're actually <laughs> Krishna. It's kind of shocking to me. So if you put your mind in the mode of goodness, then you may get this realization. And that's the process of a Sangha Yoga or a Dhyan Yoga. All right, but what problem happens when you do Dhyan Yoga, the mastery connection, is you get a sense of, I've mastered the senses and the mind. What is the side effect of mastering the senses and the mind? What do you get? You get pride, yes. What else? A mastered mind is capable of what? Something pretty amazing. Yes? It could. It definitely could. A mastered mind will tend to just think of Krishna, but it can also do something else. Mystic powers. Mystic powers. As soon as you master the mind, and especially as soon as you master the mind in connection with the super-soul. It's explained in the 11th canto that all the mystic powers come from meditation on the super-soul, different aspects of the super-soul. So if you can put your mind completely still and fix it on the super-soul and realize the super-soul, you will find that you have all these powers. All of a sudden you find these powers. I mean, they're pretty cool powers, right? You can fly. You can get anything you want, Right? Just like, ah, oh, I think I like Prabhupada said this yogi came to visit him when he was a boy. When Prabhupada was a boy, not when the yogi was a boy. And he did, it wasn't mango season, and he just reached out his hand and meditated, and there was a mango in his hand. You know, so you can have those kind of powers. You can become invisible. You can control other people's minds. So when you ask your parents for a new bicycle, you can tell them to give it to you in their mind. 
give me a bicycle, give me a bicycle, give me a bicycle. And then your dad comes to you and says, I don't know why, but today I really thought about giving you a bicycle. And so these are all the mystic powers that come. And another thing that happens in Jnana Yoga or Skanda Yoga is you generally awaken what force in the body? The snake. What is that snake called? The Kundalini. You generally awaken this Kundalini. And a lot of people who practice Jnana Yoga and Kundalini Yoga, what they're trying to do is awaken this Kundalini energy and have it go all the way up to the Sahasra Chakra and they want this kundalini snake to swallow them. They want to merge into the kundalini energy and lose their identity. So this is the side problems of this kind of yoga. Of course, for most people in the modern age, in 2018, most people who awake in their kundalini find out it's something like giving a big chainsaw to a three-year-old. You know, what will happen if you give a chainsaw to a three-year-old? They'll hurt themselves, they'll break something. They'll kill you. They'll kill you. So there's a, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you do this, but there's, there's a lot of books and articles written by people who took up these practices and awakened these forces, but couldn't deal with them. And then they end up with all kinds of health problems and all kinds of mental problems. And uh, in fact, I know a number of people who had, did that and then came to Krishna consciousness. And you know, a number of people have consulted with me and I've referred them to, I can't help them myself, but I've referred them to different people. And they say, you know, I had my kundalini awakened and you know, now I can't digest anything anymore and my mind is, is untethered. And, you know, because it was forces that they couldn't control. They weren't really qualified to deal with them. So this is the snake in the northern quadrant. Now it's interesting... Do you think a lot of people are qualified for mastery connection at the present time? No. But it's very attractive, isn't it? It's very attractive. It's definitely one of the most attractive spiritual processes in the world today. So if you talk to the average person about meditation, they're probably familiar with it. And they may even be playing with it. Right, isn't it? become a very, very popular form of spirituality, particularly for people who don't want to identify with any, any religion. Well, let me just take up meditation. I read an, an article in the New York Times some months ago about the dark side of meditation. How if you don't have a guru, if you're not actually under guidance, you're not being trained, that you can end up awakening forces that you don't know how to deal with. And they can bring you all kinds of difficulty. It says nobody wants to talk about that side of things. So Mahaprabhu warned about this snake. Okay, now we're going to go to another area of the city. We're going to go to the knowing connection. The knowing connection, you think that's what kind of yoga? Gyan yoga, yes. So how does one try to attain perfection in gyan yoga? By studying. By studying. So by studying the scriptures, by looking at the world, you try to think, you become detached. Just like you can look at all the metaphors that Judd Bard gave and you can become detached. You can say, this world's full of locusts and mosquitoes and dust storms and thorny mountains and I just, I'm just going to be detached. I won't, I won't care about anything anymore. Don't we all say that when we get angry? I just don't care. Right? I don't care. 
I don't care about anything anymore. So that, that's looking for jnana yoga. <laughs> we're also looking for jnana yoga when we're thinking, you know, I just want to be equipoised and peaceful and detached and let nothing will bother me. Even if we're thinking about it, I don't want to care in that sense, you know. The I don't care anymore is kind of in Tamagun. <laughs> but that idea that I just want to have this detachment. And in Gyan Yoga, they do this particularly through philosophical understanding. So here Mahaprabhu says you have to watch out for the Yaksha. So the Yakshas are very interesting beings. And where in the Bhagavatam is there a story that has to do with Yakshas? Guru Maharaj's story. So this is a little homework, a home fun assignment for all of you. So if you go to those verses with Dhruva Maharaj fighting the Yakshas, and you look at the Sanskrit about how the Yakshas are described, they're described in two opposite ways. They're described as Punya Jana. What's that mean? Pious people. And they're described as Rakshasas. They're described as wizards and demons, and then they're described as pious folk. So these are what we call the nature spirits. So in every, in all the old cultures of the world, there was some idea that nature was guarded by different spirits. Now these are not demigods. They're not higher beings in that sense. They're not supernatural. They're really like ultra-natural. <laughs> they're, they're nature beings. They're like the beings that guard the woods and the rivers and they guard the treasures of nature. And in all the old cultures, those beings are shown as sometimes being nice and sometimes not being nice, right? Isn't it? They can sometimes give you blessings and they, they might steal your children or they might give you a blessing that gives you trouble, isn't it? That's all the old stories of like the literally fairies and the elves and you know, these nature spirits. So they're very tricky. And they're associated with what demigod? Shiva, yes, and Kuvera. And Kuvera guards the treasure of the world. So these nature spirits are guarding the treasures of nature. What do you think the treasures of nature are in regard to Gyan Yoga? Knowledge. Excellent. When, when people become scientists, they're often looking for this Gyan Yoga. They're thinking, if I study nature, you know, if I study plants, if I study the stars, if I study the oceans, I will unlock the secrets of nature, and in that way, I will find the essence of life. So if they're just jnanis, they're thinking in that way I'll be able to control the world. And if they're jnan yogis, they're thinking that way I will find the essence of life and I'll get liberated. But these nature spirits guard the treasure of nature. So they don't really want you to find the treasures of nature. And what often happens when people study nature? They get what? They get confused, don't they? Okay, we have this new theory. This new theory explains it. Oh, no, I have this theory. And this theory and this theory can't both be true, isn't it? 
you have Newtonian physics, you have quantum mechanics, but they, they don't work with each other. They each describe nature, but they don't describe nature in a way that's harmonious with one another. So you have to either look at one or the other. And neither one describes nature completely. You never get a complete view. So you find a theory and you go, oh, this is it. But it doesn't describe things completely. And then another one, oh no, this is it. And that doesn't just, and you become bewildered. So it's like these yakshas take those who are looking for knowledge in nature and bewilder their intelligence. Okay, now we've gone to the south. In the south we have action connection. What do you think is action connection? Karma yoga. Action connection is karma yoga. How to find the essence of life through work, through your natural work. And here Mahaprabhu says to beware of the hornets. So how does karma yoga work? How is one trying to find the essence of life through karma yoga? Yes, karma palatyaga. You give up the fruit of your work, and then Krishna says in the 12th chapter, when you give up the fruit of your work, you find peace. You find peace. So in, in mastery connection, they try to find peace by mechanically making their mind still. In knowing connection, they try to find peace by understanding nature, the essence of nature. And in karma yoga, they try to find peace by giving up the results of their actions. Now, of course, giving up the results of your actions is hard. Usually we do actions to enjoy the results. So it's kind of, you're, you're kind of going opposite to your general tendency. Right? But the problem here in the action connection is the hornets. So I was thinking, why did Mahaprabhu talk about hornets? So, of course, Mahaprabhu was preaching in Bengal and Orissa, and in that part of the world, there are giant hornets. Now, these giant hornets are the enemies of what insect? If anybody can guess. The honeybee. Giant hornets are enemies. And you remember who the honeybee was way back? Who's that honeybee? The sages and the saintly person. The giant hornets will try to enter into the hives and steal the bees' honey. Now, the bees also can conquer the hornets if the bees are in a group. A single bee cannot conquer a hornet, but a group of bees. So we have our bhaktasanga. Huh? Now, how do the bees do it? The group of bees surround the hornets, and they take their wings, and they move them very, very fast. And by doing that, they create heat. And the heat kills the hornet. And when they kill the hornet that way, the hornet is not able to send out distress signals to the rest of the nest. Now, generally with hornets, with these giant hornets, if you kill one hornet, it sends out chemical distress signals to the rest of the nest, and you bring the whole nest down on you. Now, these hornets are big. You definitely cannot see it there. But anyway, you see kind of one hornet in the corner? You see that one hornet in the corner that's kind of yellowish? That hornet is sitting on a finger. See it there. The hornet is basically almost as big as a finger. That's how huge they are. Who's a pointer? Oh, I have a pointer too? Is it, is it 
No, anyway. I just, it's just, he's there in the corner. <laughs> All right, so what do these hornets represent? So I, I, was, I did quite a bit of research. You know, why is Mahaprabhu using this hornet? So hornet society is very hierarchical. It's a very hierarchical society. And it's a very hierarchically exploitive society. So the chief hornets will not necessarily make sure that the peon hornets get something to eat. The upper class hornets, they exploit the lower class hornets. It's also a very... um, in, in, In sociology, we look at two basic ways of viewing society. One is what's called functionalism. Functionalism is society's like a body and all the different organs of the body work together for the harmony of the body. That's functionalism and that's Varnashram. In what's called a critical theory or conflict theory, people see society as either a clash between economic classes or a clash between genders or both. So the hornets have this clash between the haves and the have-nots and they also have clash between the genders so the male and female hornets are not very nice to each other. And in fact, the male hornets are so cruel to the female hornets that female, the, the queen hornets would rather have nothing to do with the male hornets, even though that means that they won't be able to lay any eggs and continue their colony. So the female hornets will try to get away from the male hornets and, and so they won't have to breed with them because there's so much conflict going on. So if you think about what is the downside to karma yoga, is in order to do karma yoga, you have to identify yourself within Varnashram. Does everybody understand the logic of that? In order to do karma yoga, I have to know what is my karma. I'm going to do my karma, but I'm going to offer the results. Well, I've got to know what my karma is. In order to know what my karma is, I have to have a label for myself. I have to be able to say, I am male, I am female, I am Brahmana, I am Satriya. And the danger of putting a label on yourself is you forget that it's a label and you start thinking that it's you. And you start thinking, oh, I am a Satriya. I I am a this, I am a that. And then once you think, I am a this, I am a that, then there's a tendency to exploit those who don't have as much power as you according to the label. So there's a tendency from karma yoga to go into kind of the ugly side of karma. And as soon as you do that, you become like one of these hornets. Where you have a society, but you have a society that's in conflict. All right. Now we're finally going to go to the eastern side. And the eastern side, we have, of course, the devotion connection, which is bhakti yoga. So in bhakti yoga, one is trying to find the essence of life. How? Through service and through love. Through selfless service and through love, and particularly at the present time, bhakti yoga under the auspices of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is especially through kirtan. So especially through singing, dancing, music, and so forth. And in fact, we see that all over the world, that most of the main religions of the world have some kind of singing, some kind of prayer, some kind of singing, isn't it? I mean, certain religions are opposed to instruments, and certain religions are opposed to dancing. 
But the concept of some sort of prayer, some sort of glorification of God that is sung, you find that uh, throughout the religions of the world. So this is one of the essential practices, especially in Kali Yuga, of the devotion connection. Now, why does devotion connection bring one to the essence? How does it do it? So in mastery connection, you do it by stilling the mind. Right? In knowing connection, you do it by unlocking the secrets of nature. In action connection, you do it by finding the peace from giving up the fruits of your work. Yes? I did not ask you. Oh. How do you do it in devotion connection? That's what we're all doing, you know, we don't know how it works. Dovetailing things, that's actually an element of action connection. Our uh, devotional endeavor and grace of Krishna? It's grace, yes. What we're doing in devotion connection is we're attracting grace. We're attracting the Lord's mercy. And we're doing that by simply trying to please Him, simply to please Him. If we're trying to please Him to get something from Him, then we have the problem of the witches. Then, we, then we're, we're under the control of the witches. But if we're trying to please Him just to please Him, and we all have that experience in this world. Sometimes we try to please somebody just to please them. We don't want to get anything from them. We, all we want is that they're happy. Right? We all have some experience like this. It's, it's particularly notable in the parent-child relationship, where you just want to please your child to please your child. Right? There's some little child, and you want, to, uh, you want to play with them and tickle them and give them something just so they'll laugh. You don't, you don't want to get something from them. What are you going to get from a two-year-old child? You know, what, what do they have to give you? All you want from them is their happiness. All you want to do is make them happy. You become happy at their happiness. The little child laughs and you're happy at their happiness. So that is bhakti. Bhakti is you're happy at the happiness of Krishna. And what does that do to your heart? It melts your heart. Okay, now here we have a danger. I don't think you can see it very well in that picture. But here we have the danger. What's the danger in this quadrant? The mad elephant. So I think that those of us here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't see any mad elephants. We don't even know what a mad elephant is. Now, what are they talking about mad elephants? You know, think of it as an elephant with schizophrenia. You know, what, what exactly is this mad elephant? So in Mahaprabhu's time, everybody knew what a mad elephant First of all, in those times, they used elephants to do work. It's still true in some parts of the world, like Thailand. And elephants do work, especially in the forest, because they're especially useful for moving lumber in the forest. Because they can go into a jungle or forest without making a road. You have to create a road, and the elephants can, they can pick out the best wood and move it with their tusks and so forth. So elephants were used for work. They were also, of course, used in the military. And so Mahaprabhu was in a society where people domesticated elephants and also, of course, where there were some wild elephants. Now, elephants are very unusual in the animal kingdom. So in the animal kingdom, uh, the females in the animal kingdom go into a period of what we call heat, where the females go into a period where they're able to reproduce. The females go into cycles where they can reproduce and where they can't. And generally in the animal kingdom, males are always able to reproduce. So that's true for elephants too, but the male elephant goes into a period where they're especially potent. And when they go into that time, they become crazy. 
Now, it's not cyclical. Like with the females, these things are cyclical and they can be measured and they can be uh, planned for. With the male elephant, it just seems to be spontaneous. So the bull elephant goes into this state called must. And when a bull elephant goes into must, they have this liquid called temperin that starts coming out of the sides of their head and they're urinating constantly. So their back, the inner part of their back thighs is constantly covered with urine. And they become very sensitive to noise. Like any, any kind of noise, they become angry. Any kind of movement, they become, they become ultra, ultra sensitive. And they forget all of their loving relationships. So they say elephants never forget. And elephants are very naturally very affectionate creatures. So like elephants are very affectionate to their mouths, anybody who took care of them. But a bull elephant in musk will kill the people who took care of him and who he's very attached to. He forgets all of his training. He will destroy anything in his path. So a bull in musk will just like rampage and destroy a village, a garden, a jungle, anything. Now, the theories that zoologists have is that generally only the very old bull elephants will reproduce. And that the only way the young bulls will ever get a chance is by going into musk. Because when the bulls are in musk, everybody gets out of the way, even the old bulls. So an old, powerful bull will get out of the way of a young bull in musk. Now, in the societies where they use elephants in work, they know the first sign of a bull going into must. And what they do is they withhold almost all food and water from the bull. They give it just enough water to live, no food. And after three, four days, it passes and the elephant's normal. In modern society, when they use elephants like in circuses or zoos, when an elephant goes into must, they consider it inhumane to not give him food and water. So instead, they lock it in a heavy, heavy cage. And must naturally can go on for weeks or even months. So they keep the elephant isolated in the cage. I'm not sure what's more cruel, but anyway, that's the way it's dealt with it in the modern civilized society. But the old way of dealing with the elephant in must is you don't give it anything to eat or drink, and if you do that right at the beginning, as soon as there's... The Mahout is supposed to notice the very, very first signs of must in the bull, and if they notice it right in the beginning, and they basically starve the elephant, then must will pass in three or four days and everything's fine, never becomes a big problem. So what does this elephant in must represent in the, in the devotion connection path? And well, particularly one anartha. Aparad, and particularly one aparad. Vaishnava aparad. This elephant in must represents Vaishnava aparad. The tendency to criticize other devotees out of one's own pride. And Lord Chaitanya says that criticism of other devotees will act like an elephant in must going through a garden. Imagine what one of these bulls in must going through a garden would do. <coughs> Completely. They'll knock down trees. They'll knock down houses. So this is the danger in bhakti. And why do you think this becomes a danger in bhakti? What do you think happens in bhakti? As you progress in bhakti, you start getting what? Pride. You start getting some respect from others. Oh, you're so advanced in bhakti. And then you can think, yes, I am so advanced. I am more advanced than everybody else. 
Let me criticize this one, that one, this one, that one, this one, that one. I think I can say that one of the biggest problems we have in ISKCON is this Vaishnava Parad. It, it's really a problem. And as soon as somebody engages in Vaishnava Parad, it's just like they're feeding an elephant in must. So what are we supposed to do? As soon as we notice a little hint of this tendency for Vaishnava Aparad, immediately starve it. Immediately starve it. Trying to put it in a cage, you know, is not as effective. Just starve the thing. And then the tendency will pass. All right, so now we are in our eastern quadrant. We are in the devotion connection. And we've starved our elephant in must. And so now we're going on to the last part of our metaphors. And I'm sure many of you remember this from when I was here last time. Last time I was here, I taught this Shimanashiksha in depth. So I'm going to be going through it just very briefly today. If you want to study it in depth, I noticed you have a copy in your library. And I didn't bring any copies with me this time. Uh, but it's also available on Amazon. So this was written by Raghunath Das Goswami. Uh, while he was staying at Radhakund after the departure of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And these are instructions for those who've already started on the path of bhakti, who've already started on the path of devotion and connection. So that's why we put it here in our story. You've gone through the material forest of enjoyment. You've, you've looked at the mastery connection, the knowing connection, the action connection, and devotion connection. You've, you know, you've conquered the witches of bhakti and mukti. You're going for real devotion connection. You're starving your elephant in must. What do you have to look out for? So here we are on the path of devotion connection. How are you going to go from taking up that path to reaching perfection? So one has to have a spiritual master or spiritual masters. And one should see them as one's dear friend. One should have great love for the spiritual masters. Unprecedented love, Raghunath Das Goswami says. Not like just the love of this world, but a deep abiding love for those who guide us on the path, which of course, as Jed Bard compared them to again, the honeybees. So to take their guidance, we don't want to have a guru, Prabhupada said, as a pet or a fashion. You know, you just have some picture of your guru, oh, here's my guru but actually to follow one's guru and to follow one's guru with love. And as Dr. Vinod says, not to see them just as a saintly person, but to see them as a dear friend. And then one also has to have great love for the mantras and the holy name. Because the essential process of devotion connection is in the singing and the chanting of the holy name. Especially in this age of Kali. So, of course, there are many aspects to devotion connection one can do, but this way is a very easy and direct way to connect with the Lord. So one should really have great love for this, not taking it up as just some ritual or something official. And one should have great love for the holy places. So this means holy places like Vrindavan and Mayapur, but also means here. This is here's... Radha and Krishna and Sita Ram Lakshman Hanuman and Jagannath Balaram Subhadra and the Singha Lakshmana Singha and Gorni Thai. So here is also the spiritual world and one should have love for this place. So what does that mean? It means that one should come here, one should take care of it, do some service here, keep it clean. Right? I notice signs all over the place. Keep it clean, keep it clean. So it's unfortunate we need signs to say keep it clean. Isn't it? 
That's a sad thing that we're required to have signs. Put the books back, you know. Don't leave a mess in the toilet room. (laughs) But if we love the holy place, we naturally want to keep it clean and take care of it. And love for the process of surrender, because devotion connection is all about surrendering our false ego. It's all about surrendering our concept that I'm the enjoyer and I'm the center. And for a materially attached person, that can be a little bit of a painful thing to do. <laughs> you know, like, oh, I have to surrender. I mean, it's interesting how, how uh, in ISKCON we many times talk about surrender as something very painful. You know, somebody's sick and they say, oh, I guess I'm being purified, Prabhu. <laughs> but we should be eager to get rid of this false ego, which is the source of all of our difficulties. So Raghunath Swami gives four levels of, of false ego and pride, four different categories and levels. And we're not necessarily going to pass through them in this order, uh, but generally speaking, we're going to go through them in this order, between taking up the devotion connection and attaining Krishna Prema. So the first one is false ego in the form of sound. And, so this is, you know, ordinary gossip, mundane talk, right? The talking of politicians and the wolf and sheep's clothing there. Sorry, politicians. Uh, certainly Vaishnava Parad is included in here, but even if it isn't your full-blown elephant in must at this point, uh, anything that's like uh, useless, you know, it doesn't help you materially or spiritually, just useless talk. What movie star got married? You know, it's just completely useless. And especially it's a problem if it's fault-finding. So this is hearing this kind of talk and speaking this kind of talk. You know, what do we call it? Prajalpa. Right? One of the, the main elements of fall-down. So, of course, Prajalpa's been there for millions and millions of years. But one of the things about our modern society is we've just increased Prajalpa exponentially. You know, we all have a, a little computer in our pocket that can, can be a source of basically unlimited prajalpa. It can be a source of unlimited nectar, too. But it can be a source of unlimited prajalpa that we can find out all the nonsense that anybody is saying all over the world. Right? Isn't it? So Raghunath Swami compares this just useless talk to a prostitute who steals our wealth. So a prostitute may look attractive and may seem to be promising pleasure, but all she's interested in is the client's money. So what happens if we become absorbed in mundane sounds is we lose our ability to access bhakti. And the reason for this is that sound is the key to creation in general. So the whole world was created by sound. What was that sound? And our existence, explained in the third canto, was also created by sound. So if we are filling our mind and our ears with useless mundane sound, there's no use either materially or spiritually, then we are creating another material body for ourselves. And our wealth of bhakti will be gone. And eventually if we listen to mundane sound enough, we'll even forget why we took up bhakti. All right, then he says, don't listen to talks of liberation. So we already talked about that going to, liber- going to a religion for liberation is haunted light by a witch. 
But here the metaphor Raghunath Das Goswami gives is that of a tigress. I don't know if you can see the tigress there. Can you see it? A little bit? So the tigress, no, don't go ahead. <laughs> now we're going to break the... Ah! You're spoiling everything. Go back, go back to our tigress. Yeah, there we go. So here's a yogi looking for liberation. Oh, there we go, zooming on our tigress. And the tigress is going to eat the yogi. So this is actually not that different from the idea of the snake and the mastery connection, eating the practitioner, devouring the practitioner, same kind of thing. But as soon as we're practicing bhakti yoga, but we've been talking about liberation, and you find devotees will talk, oh, I can't wait to get out of the world, I can't wait to go back to Godhead, you know, um, oh, that person who died, they're really lucky, when's it going to be my turn to die and go back to Godhead? <laughs> so this is talks of liberation, and it eats ourself like a tigress will eat ourself in the sense that our real self is full of loving service to the Lord. Our real shelter is service. You know, the materialists think that their shelter is going to be in money and a house and family and friends and their career. And, and, or what we could think that well, my real shelter is going to be in detachment and liberation. But a real shelter is love. If, we're in the, if Krishna's loving embrace, then that's actually a much higher shelter than detachment. So the way that we get rid of this problem in bhakti is we have to have a jewel. And this is a jewel of service. It's an attitude of service and, and taking up uh, a selfless idea of serving the Lord. And again, the mood of, of wanting Krishna to be happy just so Krishna can be happy. Not wanting Krishna to be happy so something. <laughs> just wanting Krishna to be happy so Krishna will be happy. And whenever we find ourselves pulled into sounds about, you know, just useless, stupid things, we find ourselves pulled into sounds about, I want to be liberated, if we take out this jewel of, I want Krishna to be happy so he'll be happy, we'll be able to conquer them. Then the next problem with ego has to do with action. So with this problem of action, this is where our talks are proper, but our actions are not. We're not walking our talk. You know, so somebody who preaches very nicely and they talk about Krishna, they're not talking rubbish, they're talking about love of God, but their behavior isn't up to the standard. And here Raghunath Das Goswami gives the metaphor of thieves. And these thieves have ropes that they put around our neck. And these are lust, Anger, one of the kids was asking me how to deal with anger earlier. Envy, greed, illusion, madness. And the ropes that they have are made out of the, the actions that we know are wrong. I know I shouldn't watch that and I watch it. I know I shouldn't eat it and I eat it. I know I shouldn't do it and I do it. And of course, Arjuna brought up this problem. Why do I do things I know are wrong? Why do I do things I know are wrong? So, do we all have this problem sometimes? We do things we know, we already know they're wrong. We say, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. And Arjuna said, it feels like we're forced. And indeed, Raghunath Das Goswami says, yeah, you've got these thieves that have ropes around your neck and appear to be pulling you to do things you don't want to do, even while you're practicing bhakti and you're preaching about bhakti. So he says the solution here is to call for help. 
of the devotees and to call for help, especially the devotees who are free from these things. So calling for help is not easy. Calling for help is not easy. Right? You may see I need help. Oh, I've gotten behind on my schoolwork. I'm behind one week in my schoolwork. Oh, now I'm behind two weeks in my... I'll catch up. I'll catch up. Now I'm behind three weeks in my schoolwork. Oh, I'll be able to catch up. No problem. And your, your dad says, how you doing in school? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Now I'm four weeks behind in my school. I'll be able to catch up. And finally, you know, it's going to be the final exam tomorrow, and you go to the professor and say, I don't think I'm ready. You know, and it's too late. So it's hard to go for help. It's hard to say, I have a problem. It's a difficult thing. We see this even in our society of devotees, that sometimes a person will have some private or secret problem for 10, 15 years, and finally it gets revealed, right? Isn't it? Then everybody finds out. Oh, actually, this person has a problem. So, to go for help. And I'm sure that, that this idea of going for help was the uh, original idea behind the confession in the Catholic Church. You know, that you go to some priest and you say, I'm having a problem. You don't just keep it to yourself. So, it doesn't mean you should write it on the internet, it doesn't mean you should tell everybody in the world about all the problems that you're having. But it means that we should have some sadhus that we trust, that we can reveal our mind to. It's one of the items of bhakti, is to reveal one's mind in confidence in such a way that we are willing to take instruction, not I have this problem and I'm not going to hear anything you have to say about how to solve it, and also in a way that will enlighten both of us, how can I work in a way that Krishna will help me overcome this problem? All right, next, Raghunathas Goswami talks about dealing with the false ego and pride in terms of the mind. And here he talks about a very special kind of hypocrisy where we are fooling ourselves. And his metaphor for this kind of hypocrisy is a bath in burning donkey urine, which was everyone's favorite Manashiksha metaphor. So when I, when I, was, when I teach Manashiksha in depth, when I would teach this particular verse, that was at least the one everyone remembered and, and everybody's favorite. So here you see that the thieves are dead, lust, anger, envy, greed, and their gross form are dead. And the person is thinking, wow, I conquered these things. My actions are in line with my philosophy. I have integrity of action. And now I'm definitely getting purified. And Raghunath Das Goswami says, you have to be careful because you can be accidentally bathing in donkey urine. This donkey urine is when we do the right now, and we're speaking the right thing, we're doing the right thing, but our motives for doing the right thing are wrong. I'm doing the right thing so other people will praise me. I'm doing the right thing so that I'll, you know, some rich person will give a big donation. And, and I'm not really acting in a mood of bhakti. And I may even do some wrong things and justify them. I neglect my sadhana because I have so many important services that need to get done. You know, this kind of thing. Or I, I preach uh, exclusively to the opposite sex and say it's all in the name of preaching. You know, so, so many ways that we can justify, mentally justify things that we're doing, but the real motive is different. The real motive is, is some sort of inner subtle form. We're free of the gross forms of pride and anger, but there's some sort of subtle form of that operating. 
So Raghunath Das Goswami says that we get free of that by bathing in the ocean of love. And bathing in the ocean of love at the feet of Radha and Krishna, meaning that we surrender our mind to them and we say, my dear Radha Krishna, please show me what's actually in my mind. Please show, my, show me my real motives. Give me the courage to face them and give me the courage to be free of them. So then from there we go to the most subtle level of false ego and that is in the heart and this is the, the, the deep driver. And here Raghunath Das Goswami gives the metaphor of a dead dog. So when a person has come this far in bhakti, they're actually at a point of great advancement. They're swimming in the ocean of love with the feet of Radha Krishna. Right? They have a jewel of service. They're taking help from the sadhus. Their actions are in accord with their preaching. They're actually functioning at quite a high level. And so they may become proud of their what? Their advancement. They become proud of their advancement. They start thinking, I'm a very advanced devotee. And there was, it was a particular, one particular person in this con that where this was a very obvious uh, progression. We had one leader where this was quite obvious. You saw that this person became very, very advanced and then became proud. Oh, I've become very advanced. It was quite, quite an interesting thing. And when, of course, when you're proud of your advancement, then you want everyone else to recognize how advanced you are and everybody to say, oh, yes, you're a great, you're a great saintly person. It's kind of like you've given up on becoming God, but you want to be a, a saintly person. You want to be a big saint, you know. So this pride of wanting to be honored for one's religiosity is compared to a dead dog. And then Raghunath Das Goswami gives a further analogy of a disloyal woman who wants to eat this dog. So the dog represents the honor one gets for being advanced in bhakti and the disloyal dancing woman represents the desire to enjoy that honor. Just like we found Madhavindapuri when uh, Gopinath gave him the sweet rice, when Gopinath sold the sweet rice for him and he was eating it and he thought, oh no, in the morning everybody will find out what happened and they will praise me. So what did he do? He left. He didn't say, well... You know, that's okay, they can praise me. I mean, after all, Gopinath did steal the sweet rice from me, you know. That's totally cool if they praise me. They ought to praise me for that. So he didn't think like that. He thought, let me get out of here before they start praising me. Of course, the praise followed him wherever he went, and he got praised anyway. But his mood was, I don't want to be praised as a saintly person. You know, I remember when Prabhupada was talking about Varnashram, he was talking about, you know, um, first class, second class, third class, fourth class people. And one of the reporters who was there said, so I guess you must be one of the first class. But I said, no, I am fifth class because I'm serving even the fourth class person. You know, and when, when people would praise Prabhupada, Prabhupada would deflect it and say, no, I'm simply following my guru march. Yes. We've heard it said that somebody who praises you is actually your enemy. Yes. Now that doesn't mean, by the way, that you shouldn't praise anybody. <laughs> so... It's not that if you have children or students or employees that you should just criticize them all the time. I'm criticizing you for your own good, otherwise I'm ready. Uh, Of course you should correct them, uh, but they also need encouragement. But the idea is that we shouldn't be hungry for people praising us for our advancement. In fact, Prabhupada defines humility as not wanting to be honored for being a religious person. That's how he defines humility in the Bhagavad Gita. So Bhagavad Gita further says, that uh, this uh, disloyal woman, well, why is she disloyal? Because when you want to be praised, you go to whoever praises you, and you leave whoever doesn't. That she has a lover named Deceit. 
Because when we want people to praise us for our advancement, then we will generally portray ourselves as being at least a little bit more advanced than we actually are. Isn't it? We become deceitful. And Bhaktivinoda says that this desire to be honored for our bhakti is at the root of all of our other inartas and all of our other attachments. So we get free of this problem, Raghunath Swami says, by being the loyal servant of the great generals in the army of Mahaprabhu. By giving all credit to them, they'll take this problem out of the heart, knowing that only through their help that we can't do anything on our own. Instead of wanting to be served and honored, we should serve and we should honor, which is, of course, the third verse of the Shikshastika. And then, by the mercy of these great devotees, then even though we are fallen, we no longer see, oh, I'm so advanced, I'm so wonderful, we see, I'm so fallen, but by their mercy, they can bring something good out of my fallen condition. Now, that's not going to work. All right, and then once we do that, then we are genuinely free. So once we've come to this point now, all of our obstacles are gone, and we are genuinely free. At this point, we can have total absorption in bhakti, and at this point, we should see it better, but this is uh, one of our paintings in the book. This is Vrindavan. At that point, we can really enter into Vrindavan. Before this point, we can take an airplane and we can get off at the Delhi airport and we can take a, a car on the Yamuna Expressway and we can go to Vrindavan, but we don't really see Vrindavan. Ah, there you go. Isn't it? You know, we see, oh, here's some run-down, dirty village. So, but when we're at this point of freedom, we can actually see Vrindavan and enter into Vrindavan. And when we do that, then we fully realize, we may have some realization even earlier in this process, but we will fully realize our relationship with Krishna. We'll fully realize, oh, I'm a cowherd boy, I'm a gopi, I'm one of Krishna's parents, I'm one of Krishna's cows. We'll fully understand our original spiritual identity. And then we may continue to work in the world, but in transcendental consciousness. That's not a fire. That's devotee clothes. It's like under his suit. You can't really see it. So this is somebody who's working in the world, apparently functioning in the world, but their inner consciousness is in Goloka Vrindavan. Their inner consciousness is in Krishna. Inwardly, they're aware of their eternal relationship with Krishna. They're aware of the spiritual world. And they're not really in the world. And such a person has actually found the real essence or the nectar of life. So thank you very much. Shiva Prabhupada, please. Questions, comments? Yes. Hare Krishna Mataji, thank you so much for the wonderful class. Clarified uh, lots of confusion for me. Uh, I'm still having a question about uh, the west side of it, the yakshas. Okay. Uh, I could relate with South in terms of the very strong caste system over there. Yes, yes, yes. I could relate with the North in terms of meditation, East also. 
But the best I couldn't relate with what's, what happens in India. Okay, so if you think about Gyan Yoga, Gyan Yoga is your mo you're studying the Shastra, but you're also really studying nature. What you're trying to do is get detached through study. You know, you look at the world and you see uh, people just grow up, make money, have kids, buy a car, get old and die. What is the use? Or, you know, you're, you're looking at nature as a scientist. And, and you know, how, does, how do the cells in the, in the trees transport water up into the leaves, which nobody knows how that happens, by the way. And, you know, how does gravity work in outer space? And nobody knows how that happens either. You know, so you're looking at all these different things and you're trying to understand nature. And you're hoping that by understanding nature, you will unlock her secrets. And you'll find the essence of life. And you'll attain perfection. You'll attain God-realization. However you're defining it, you'll attain enlightenment through a philosophical study of nature. So the Yakshas and Kuvera, they guard the treasures of nature. They make them unavailable. And the way that they do that is by bewildering people. When, when we try to understand truth through nature, it's, it's practically speaking impossible to understand the whole picture. And so you see with science, they'll understand a part of the picture. And another scientific theory will understand another part of the picture. And those, those theories contradict each other, not in harmony with each other. They don't get the whole picture. So in this way, they become lost. They think that they're going to, to unlock nature, and they never do. They, they understand this part or that part, and okay, they can create an antibiotic, and they can create a moon rocket, and they can create a computer that fits in your pocket. I mean, they can create all these magical and wonderful things, but they don't really understand what's going on because they become confused. So these nature spirits, particularly, they're not allowing the secrets and the treasures of nature to be given to unqualified people. They're, they're the guardians. Now, they can also be benevolent. So the nature spirits can also be benevolent. But they're generally portrayed as, uh, that's why they're called punyajan. They have powers beyond that of human beings. But they're also tricky and they're illusionists and they're, uh, they're just as likely to be malevolent or deceptive in some way. So that you think, oh, I'm, I'm gaining knowledge, I'm gaining knowledge, I'm gaining realization, I'm gaining perspective. And then you find out, wait a minute, there's all these things that my theory can't explain, all these things that I don't know, and I really didn't grasp the ultimate secrets of, of the universe. And this is exactly what happens. Just like Newton said, you know, I've spent all my life studying science and I know barely a grain of sand on the shore of the ocean of knowledge. So this is, the, this is what one realizes in the end. You know, just like to get a PhD, you have to know a tremendous amount about a teeny tiny little itsy bitsy part of knowledge. You have to find some little part of knowledge that nobody's studied yet and you study that in depth. So you know, like I'm the world's, I, I am actually the world's greatest authority on the job satisfaction of all the teachers in Hare Krishna schools in the fall and winter of 2005. <laughs> I, I actually am. So I know a tremendous amount about something very small. You understand? So you know, you think, when, when you embark on this, this sort of past, you think, I'm going to, uh, 
just like I was one time talking to a brain surgeon and I asked her, why did you decide to become a brain surgeon? And she said, I thought that if I could touch the brain, I could touch the self. She said, but I couldn't. She said, I still don't know what the self is even after 20 years of being a brain surgeon. So it's, it's this, this bewilderment where you, know, you think you're going for truth, but actually you, you, you barely understand a little tiny something and you don't see the whole picture. You, you get bewildered. Is that clear? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. That, that's what the yakshas do. They're, they're tricky. They, they can be benevolent. Yes? Hi, Krishna. So, Mataji, it's not related to the lecture, but I have a general question. Like for Gorpurima, the 100 plus temple we went to the Nagar Sankirtan. Talk about not related, okay. Yeah, sorry, it's, it's not exactly related, it's related to Krishna. So, there are two, three ladies and like uh, people are, we were dancing and doing kirtan, preaching and giving goody to out. So, they asked actually who you are and what you are guys doing. So, I was not prepared that question and even I don't know the answer exactly. You still don't know who you are and what you're doing? No, <laughs> I know how to explain the people. Uh -huh. So, you don't know how to explain Krishna consciousness to people? Yeah, the answer I gave is... I try my best, but I was not convinced 100% it is right answer. Then I'm not so sure. I may be convinced than 10% or I totally convinced. So I'm looking the answer. Well, how you answer that question depends a lot on who's asking what's the context. You know, who you are and what are you doing. I mean, I hope what you're doing is pretty simple. I'm trying to attain, attain love of God. That's a pretty simple answer you can give to anybody. What we're doing is we're trying to attain love of God. We're trying to connect with the Supreme Lord. If you're around people who don't like God very much, then you can say we're trying to connect with our ultimate source and we're trying to connect with the divine or something like that. That's also fine. We're trying to connect with the absolute truth. That's, that's fine. Uh, and who are we? We're representatives of, a, of an ancient tradition of, of connecting with, this, with the truth through love and devotion. That's sufficient. Now, if you're speaking to people more knowledgeable, then you can say we're followers of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we're in the Brahma Madhva Gaudiya Sampradaya, we're followers of A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, we're members of the Hare Krishna movement, we're members of ISKCON. It depends on, you know, you, do you know what I'm saying? Yes. And for some people, you might say, you know, if they say you're Hindu, some people you're going to say yes, some people are going to say no. Depends who they are and why they're asking. If you go to Indonesia, you better say yes. <laughs> if you go to Indonesia and they say, are you Hindu, you, ha you have to say yes. If you don't say yes, then they'll say, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to be in this country, get out. We were banned for 15 years because some of the early devotees said we weren't Hindus. So, you know, in, in Indonesia, there's only six religions. You have to be religious in Indonesia. You're not allowed to be an atheist. Seriously. Singapore, I can and you have only six religions that you can be, and one of them is Hindu. So if you say you're a religion that's not Hindu, you're not allowed to be there. So you have to say you're Hindu. And other places you might not want to say you're Hindu. So, you know, how, how do you exactly label yourself depends on, on who you're with. Does that, yes, does that make sense? Yes, and And... You don't have to worry about getting it perfect. Just, you know, just do your best. But a simple thing you can say to anybody is we're here trying to connect people with, with the Supreme. 
in a, in a loving way through through joyful song and joyful dance, and that's that's sufficient for most people. You you know you, we're with the Hare Krishna movement, and we're trying to connect to the Supreme Lord through love and devotion and song and dance. That'll that'll do for most people. Is that all right? Yes, I'm okay. Thinking. Are you convinced of that? You said you weren't so convinced. Is that convincing? Okay. Yes. Thank you, Madhuji, for wonderful, wonderful class, and good to hear you in person. <laughs> um, I have two questions. Uh, one question was that you were mentioning about genuine religion. I want to understand what is genuine religion. Is it related to the four Vaishnav Sampradayas? Well, it goes beyond that. I mean, Prabhupada would often often say that Jesus is our guru. Um, sometimes when Prabhupada would say, uh, in, talking about the ten offenses, don't blaspheme devotees who have dedicated their lives, he would specifically say Mohammed and Jesus. So he would say, they were, they're teaching at a different level, but don't blaspheme them. So... I think uh, Bhaktivinoda gives some really nice explanations of non-sectarianism. Anything, any religion that has a, a genuine prophet and that ultimately is teaching love of God, to know God and to love Him. Now, people may not be doing that, but the religion itself is teaching that. Is that okay? Thank you. I mean, is everybody in ISKCON trying to know and love God at every moment? No, of course not. But that doesn't mean that our religion is not teaching that. That's what we're teaching. We're teaching to know and love God. So that's not dependent on... The the fact that we're teaching that in a genuine way does not depend on whether every single person at every moment is actually doing that. Okay, I think we should end now. Um, I do have a few more books left, if if you would like them.